amazing. Um, we are going to start uh, with the community health worker expansion report. Uh, we are shy one person for a quorum, and he should be here in approximately 15 minutes or so. So uh, we're going to go ahead and start with you. And Lily, just to be clear, did you want to share your slides, or am I doing it for you? Uh, you are doing it for me. Thanks, Heather. Fantastic. Sorry for the scrolling. I hope nobody's getting <laughs> I apologize. All right. Um, and also, just to set the tone for this one, this is an informational presentation to orient you to the work happening at AHS related to community health workers, and so there is a memo that um, is in your packet. And we welcome Lily McRae and Regina Simpkins. Thank you so much for coming today. Thank you, everyone. Uh, Regina couldn't make it tonight, um, but I will do my best to represent. Um, so thank you so much for giving me the time to provide this update. Um, I've been here in this uh, forum with you I think last year when we were talking a little bit about community health workers and a potential for a photo voice project. Um, so today I want to talk about our initiative around expanding the community health worker workforce at AHS. Next slide. So I'm going to go quickly, uh, but you all have the materials, so you can spend time yes. with them. I invite you know, questions, um, or um, if you want to have me back, I'm happy to drill down in any area. But really I want to talk about um, the definition of a community health worker. Uh, I want to share a little bit about our discovery phase, what we discovered um, over the last year and what recommendations were made. Uh, share some statewide changes and requirements around the Medi-Cal benefit, and then discuss the implementation framework for this expansion. Um, so briefly, um, the the environment that we're expanding in um, is really ripe um, for building this workforce. Uh, we have a track record at AHS um, and an established workforce. So we have many community health workers and others in, in similar um, roles. Um, and we've had built on, we want to build on the success that we've had. Um, it's now a benefit through Medicaid um, and there's opportunity to leverage uh, reimbursements um, in addition to having a more standardized approach to the um, competencies around CHWs. Also, um, growing recognition and evidence uh, around the impact of social determinants. Um, these are things that we all know to be true, and now there's more um, recognition in our, um, in our systems. Care. And then lastly, uh, the strategic plan has identified this as a goal. So really to, to develop a community health worker program. So we took that goal and we created a vision and a purpose. Originally the goal of the strategic plan really um, identified keeping patients out of the hospital as the reason for this program. And we sort of take, took it a step further and uh, really want to uh, create an, an environment where all patients have access to holistic and affirmative care. And we believe that creating the, a more coordinated infrastructure around this workforce um, can do this. Um, so really supporting the quality 
integration and growth of community workers across our um, organization. So really, um, any um, any care site will have a community health worker embedded. Um, so what is a community health worker? This is a term that we hear a lot, and I just wanted you to walk away with a couple of key pieces of information. One is that it's an umbrella term that can refer to lots of different job classifications and job titles. Um, but really, um, some of the shared characteristics of this role is that it's a, it's a role that relies on relationship and trust, um, and that its focus is really using experience as expertise um, for our patients and also to inform our system. Um, the explicit purpose of community health workers is to improve access and promote equity. And generally, the role is unlicensed. So here at HS, we have community health workers that date back to the 1980s um, that met the, the need of the AIDS epidemic. Um, currently, today, we have about 48 FTEs serving a variety of uh, populations across our uh, organization. So typically targeted populations um, such as people experiencing homelessness, um, behavioral health, um, etc. And we have also have many different job classifications you see that listed on the right. Um, we have community health worker, community health outreach worker, patient navigator, so the, the, the title of the um, job classification varies, but really um, having those shared characteristics that I spoke of earlier. Next slide. Oh, excuse me, I do have a question. Great. <laughs> on, on, I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, the job classification, mm -hmm. uh, what's actually the difference really between the health advocate and a health Coach. Yeah, do you want to go back to that slide, Heather? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. So we're currently in a process right now looking at the job descriptions to really understand not just between the two job descriptions you um, called out, but all of these job descriptions to see how they're similar and where they differ. Um, health Advocates actually is a specific program at AHS that is sort of like a help desk model where we have community health workers uh, meeting health related, providing health related social resources to patients. Um, and it's, it's typically a one or two or three encounter intervention. So it's not services over time. Um, and I think you asked about health coaches. Did you ask about health coaches? Yes. Yeah, so the health coaches Currently, we have two programs that have, have, have health coaches. One is uh, folks in the ED, they're actually employed by the county, um, and they're providing um, sort of coaching of patients around specific chronic, chronic medical conditions like hypertension. Um, then we also have another health coach program where I believe it's um, sort of an intern model where it's people who are hoping to go to um, medical school who are help supporting ambulatory settings. Um, so focused on that health coach and kind of navigation piece. 
Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Thank you. Yeah. Any other questions? Are health advocates currently up and running still? Yes, they are up and running and they receive referrals from all over the system, but they're centralized and typically they're providing telephonic services. Um, so they receive referrals from the inpatient services, the ED, and then all ambulatory settings. Okay, so they're not physically here where, um, say, K6, you know, could send a patient over to see them? Correct. Yeah, they used to have an actual physical location. Yeah. And in response to the pandemic, they moved um, mostly telephonic. We do see, the health advocates do see patients at the bedside um, when, when they're still in the hospital, a patient's still in the hospital. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, I have one more question. I'm curious, I know you probably get more into like the reimbursement opportunity that's coming, but I'm curious for the 48 that currently exists, how did they come to be? Like, were they from grants or did someone just say, we need this? health coach or whatever the position was and the hospital just agreed to it? Yeah, another great question. So um, all different ways. So some programs emerged from grants. Um, some programs emerged from a, a specific champion um, wanting to um, uh, like champion an issue or a problem in a particular um, area. Um, many of our CHWs are part of the enhanced care management teams of the complex care teams that provide enhanced care management and they're reimbursed through um, the state, through the health plans, um, uh, through the CalAIM um, initiative. Um, some programs, um, I think I kind of covered it, so like local champions, grants, and then just sort of naturally over time, um, uh, different clinical areas identifying needs. I, I think one of the things that we, we, we learned, and, and you're looking at the slide around our discovery phase, is that there was a lot of good work happening in isolation. So there was a lack of, over the years in the development of these different programs, a lack of coordination around how CHWs were trained, how CHWs um, accessed resources or had partnerships in the community. Um, so that's one of the things that we're trying to do is to create some sort of centralized supports for CHWs while keeping CHWs um, working locally in different care sites. Um, the other concern that we, we heard a lot about was sustainability. So if you have a program that's developed from a grant, um, and then say that grant runs away, does that program go away? Um, and where is the valuation and transparency for that kind of expansion? So that's another big focus of this is having a sustainability plan um, and transparency with the, uh, and accountability with the, um, the work that's happening. Um, a few other things I wanna highlight in terms of what we learned through the discovery phase is this, this piece around um, centralized support and training and decentralized CHWs. We, we learned that it was very important that CHWs report locally um, and are really integrated into the care teams um, and not sitting outside of those care teams. Um, but also hearing that people really wanted access to local resources, not just for CHWs, but for things like 
um, supervisors or how to onboard CHWs. Um, so that's these are some um, some recommendations that we will act on. Um, another um, piece that I want to um, highlight is um, we're really needing to weave the CHW voice um, throughout the process. So we've created an advisory council, and then also CHWs are sitting on all of our different committees. So um, providing um, providing uh, their perspective um, and experience, and then ultimately, um, really informing the system beyond our CHW expansion, being able to advise other activities and program design. Um, this discovery phase, we did interviews, we did focus groups, we did a survey, um, and then we had several feedback sessions where we were able to develop these nine recommendations. I have a question. Yeah. In creating the, um, in creating the, um, um, the, um, oh, the advisory council, um, has there been any discussion as to what the makeup, what kind of makeup that would be? I mean, would you have certain people from, say, um, on an administrative level um, in the hospital um, handling that, or would you have um, a, a mixture of, of like people who use it and people who actually supervise it, or has there been any discussion about makeup? Yeah. So we um, we approached it sort of informally at first. We just put the word out to all of the CHWs who would like to participate in this. And we got a little bit of funding um, so that we can provide lunch uh, for folks who are attending the advisory council. And in terms of facilitating the, the group, it's myself and Regina Simpkins, um, who used to be a community health worker and is now um, working around training and education of community health workers. Um, so that's the current structure, and we've met twice. Um, and so we're really still in the forming phase. We're forming the group, we're establishing our norms. Um, one thing that we did was talk a lot about the certification, which um, I'll share a bit in a bit, um, the certification process and what we need in order to have a successful rollout. Um, you know, the goal is that all of our CHWs eventually become certified, um, but how we do that, how we support um, CHWs to do that, we want it to be very, um, you know, low barrier, accessible, and supportive to, to people in the job, um, and not be, not be something that um, screens people out. We were able to get that. <coughs> Will you have any patients on your advisory board? That is a possibility. We don't currently, but it's a possibility. It's something that we've talked about. I think we wanted to just get going and establish the group and um, understand our, our cadence and our process, um, but we'd be open to that. Yeah, because I think that could be very helpful, especially if, if the patient has used the community health worker services and yeah. uh, what was missing or what was helpful or, you know. Yeah, yes, that's a great idea. Uh, I think that, you know, because community health workers are explicitly um, people who represent the community, represent our patients, and have had experiences um, 
that align with the populations we're serving. Um, the workforce can be sort of proxy for the community, but I think your suggestion is really um, helpful to me because it's something that we've considered. So what you're looking at is our current state. Um, a lot of times people think about you know, population health as a triangle. So you have a small amount of people at the top who benefit from more services, who have uh, medical and social complexity, often are um, sort of high, high cost patients. Um, right now we have CHWs and programs uh, supporting people at that high risk tier, um, targeting specific populations, as you see. Um, so uh, really supporting people across our continuum, so not in any one uh, department or place. Um, but we, in our discovery phase, uh, we identified that we have patients who have health-related social needs across our uh, population, across our, our system. Um, so in thinking about an expansion, we wanted to, uh, you can go to the next slide, Heather. We wanted to build our CHW services to support people in that low and rising risk uh, groups so that we can have support for people that's scalable to prevent people from moving into those higher risk um, situations and have more medical and social complexity. Um, so future state is that we have CHWs embedded in care teams um, so that they can be accessed in everyday care. I'll stop there for just a moment if people have questions about that framework. So as we move from discovery to implementation, uh, we're gonna use a pilot approach. Um, and when I say implementation, uh, what I'm talking about is net new FTEs. We are not talking about repurposing CHWs that are already, that are already working in specific programs, we're talking about growth. So not only this building of our training and our um, sort of support of CHWs and their supervisors, but growth. Um, so we're going to pilot um, in um, two or three areas this year um, in phases um, and then really use data to monitor our progress, monitor and share our progress, and then spend a lot of time around training and culture building. Um, we hear a lot um, when I made this presentation, there's a lot of questions like how many FTEs, how many people? And what I, while this is an important question is where we want to evaluate the need of our system, we also need to think beyond, the, beyond sort of an FTE expansion and really think about how are we going to change our culture and embed this, um, this role into our care teams. Next slide. So I just wanted to share a bit about the certification. So as I mentioned, um, Medi-Cal is now reimbursing for CHW services. Um, you're unable to get reimbursed in any FQHC setting um, because it's a, a double dip in terms of our reimbursements. Um, but we can get we can uh, bill in ED. But I, I did want to talk about certification because this is, as I mentioned, it's a goal for us to have our CHWs certified. 
from a at AHS. Um, it's required for billing, but it's not required to do to be a CHW in California. Um, and then the, the certification um, is um, endorsed by the Healthcare Access Information um, Agency at the state level. Um, they identified 11 core competencies um, for that certification and then um, for that certification project or um, curriculum and six hours of uh, continued education each year. Um, so, so the certification pr project uh, programs are, I think they're 80 hours of classroom time plus uh, some field service time. Um, the state, both HCI and, um, and the DHCS, has identified lived experience as an explicit requirement for CHWs. So any CHW that is certified must sign a self-attestation of having lived experience. I mean, you can see the link here. You can read exactly what the state, how the state defines this. Um, and there's different pathways to certification. So uh, there's an acknowledgement of people working in this field uh, for many years. So there's an experience pathway. Um, if you've worked um, for 2,000 hours, you do a training program, or if you've done a training program in the past, there's reciprocity with, with some training programs. Next slide. So as I mentioned, we want to certify our CHWs at AHS uh, to really ensure that our workforce has access to the same um, competencies and skills and information to do the work. And we think this is gonna ensure continuity and quality of care across our organization. Um, we think also this will allow members of our care team not just CHWs, but other members of the care team to work up to their, uh, the top of their license and abilities. Uh, we think that this will help with our retention um, of CHWs. And the certification is, um, stays with you. So far, you know, if you leave the organization as a certified CHW, that certification travels with you. So professional development. And then of course, the additional revenue when we're able to build. This slide is, there's a lot going on in this slide, but I just wanted to acknowledge that we have this infrastructure for, um, for facilitating this expansion. We have um, our executive sponsor is Tangerine Brigham, and we've established a steering committee and two subcommittees focused on system-wide um, workforce and clinical development and financing. And then we will establish work groups in the individual pilot areas. Um, I mentioned the community health worker voice is really woven into the entire process um, through the advisory council, through committee membership. Um, we're also participating in a learning collaborative with the county um, and other local CBOs that was funded by California Healthcare Foundation. And that's provided some technical assistance, some um, work groups that we've attended and been able to benefit from some best practices together um, and some internal technical assistance that they've been funded. We've identified two, our first, oops, the first two pilot areas as the emergency department and ambulatory, and we are launching this month 
um, with the goal of implementation being completed by the first quarter in the calendar 2024. Um, the third pilot area is TBD. So this is just a bit about the learning collaborative we've participated in CHCF. Uh, one of the, the, you're seeing a photo of a convening that this fund this funded where community health workers and others gathered uh, for an all day conference together. Um, and this was, um, you know, the county and community clinics and CBOs, um, including HS. Um, Here's a bit more of our advisory council, um, like we talked about, really wanting this advisory council to inform the expansion, um, to provide that voice, um, but also um, eventually to really help to inform other program design and development. I won't go into this too specifically, but this is a detailed timeline of our activities for this first uh, 15 months. Next. Thank you so much for your time. Sorry if I've gone a little bit over. What questions are there? Um, <clears throat> okay, so this is interesting because I feel like I know you said this was informational but this feels like a benefit that is really important for the population that we are here for and yet because of the PPS rate we can't actually get revenue for this position in the homeless health center entities um, so I guess I'm just tossing that out as a statement <laughs> um, and it just, I just feel like it merits some more thought because um, two things. First of all, my question is, what are the CHWs that you're going to be adding to the ED going to be doing? And then my sec, because I think there could be potential for those CHWs to be working with people experiencing homelessness and perhaps helping them connect with the homeless health center. And then my other question is, I think there's a possible, there isn't theory a mechanism where a nonprofit could be employing the CHWs that could be based at Alameda Health System. I'm curious if that's, I know that in the Bridge Clinic, PEPAC, the syringe exchange program is actually employing the, the navigators who I think are being considered CHWs, but I don't know if PEPAC wants to go and get reimbursement from Medi-Cal for those folks, but I'm thinking that, like, I know it is in theory, it's a possibility that that could happen. I just don't know how realistic it is in practice. How would that work, Damon? Would, well, they're not billing as FCHC yet, correct? Yeah, so I think uh, you can't make money through the mechanism of certification and billing, but it's important to know that we have sustainable you know, workers right. that are already in the FQHC right now. So okay, the mobile health specialists yeah. on the mobile van are community health workers. They've been funded by a continuous grant, you know, passed through from the county for 10 plus years. The community health workers in the AIC clinic where I have my continuity practice um, are funded, you know, primarily through the Ryan White program, which is also 
also continuous renewable grant funding. We have community health workers in the Bridge Clinic, which is part of our FQAC, who actually work in this other way with a nonprofit with unclear funding sources, which is part of our budget <laughs> conversation with, with, you know, the, um, with uh, the Board of Trustees, right? Is what does fund? How would we expand them? Are, are they part of the budget we are approving or not, right? So I think this is where there's a connection between the issues we've been discussing a lot around our role approving a budget and, and some of these roles in the organization. Um, so I don't think that this is the only funding mechanism. And I think, um, you know, it, alongside that, this is the, court, the single coordination mechanism for all those folks. So all those folks can participate in the education and training and get supported by some of these systems that we're developing. But we're going to need to be much more, I was going to use the word promiscuous, but I, <laughs> we're going to need to think about funding coming from a lot of places for yeah. CHWs yeah. in an ongoing way beyond just the billing mechanism. Yeah, yeah. but the billing mechanism is this new opportunity that is sustainable. Like it's expandable and yeah. you don't have to keep taking grants. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say too. Um, many years ago, seven, eight, nine years ago, um, when I was doing volunteer work in the um, T6 clinic, um, the only reason we got, well, I shouldn't say the only reason, but one of the important reasons that we got people to even join into this patient advisory board was because they were compensated. And that was an incentive for them to come and to participate. And um, we had two community health workers um, that were in our group that were trying to go out and do home health visits pertaining to the, um, we were working on um, high blood pressure. And so the goal was to have health workers go out and interview patients and make sure they're taking their proper medication, look at what they're taking, answer questions, blah, blah, blah. And when the money ran out, as far as I know, that's not continued, is it? No? Not as far as I know. I, I haven't heard anything about it for many, many years. So what you're saying about, you know, when the grants run out, then then what happens? You know, I think that's real important because I think that, um, for example, K6, K6 could definitely use some community health workers to go out and, and see patients in their home, you know, for multitude of reasons. But I don't, I don't think we have that right now, do we? Well, I, Lily, can, Lily can talk about, I think we don't, it's, it's, we don't have it, but we don't not have it either. I think we do have the complex care management teams that are embedded in the clinics and partnered with the clinics. Um, and so the, I think there are a lot of detailed questions around how do we get together the funding and then how do we get together the staff so yeah. that they constitute real teams right. um, that, that do this work. So I, Lily probably has more to say yeah. Yeah, yeah, thank you. The, the the current state, we do have community health workers out in the community focused in that those higher risk groups. Um, we do have a, a reimbursement mechanism through ECM, uh, the CalAIM program. Um, but I also want to be clear that those mechanisms don't cover program costs. Um, even when we've, we've done the, the, the numbers for the reimbursement through Medi-Cal, for the ED, for instance, we don't think that that will cover 100% of our program costs. We do have to think about other mechanisms for funding and also how we're um, tracking potential indirect um, return on investment. So 
how is the impact of community health workers indirectly financially benefiting our system? Uh, we need to really be excellent at, at identifying those opportunities and describing them so that we can have a sustainable plan um, and so that these great ideas don't fade um, when the mm -hmm. champion Yeah, I think that's the reality is so you said this is the this is the expansion opportunity, but I think I think about it much more the way that Lily just said that this is nowhere near covering all the costs. Yeah. And and we have to for this program and all the others use the opportunity that, you know, philanthropists are invested in this, the county is or the, the state and the county, but the state more importantly is reassessing the sort of policy framework around all of this. In, in a way that wants to help us organize. So things like alternative payment methods for primary care, where you're not billing by a provider visit, those open up opportunities to consider additional staffing models, which may include community health workers. And you know, that's another example kind of in our sphere in the FQHC, where things that aren't necessarily specifically aligned with fee-for-service billing for CHWs still may be really important mechanisms for sustaining CHWs over time. And I think um, we, we have a ways to go as a system to construct our analyses in that way, present them to ourselves, make decisions, value expertise like you all in those kinds of conversations. I think the last thing I'll say um, in response to what you brought up is our community partnerships. Um, we cannot do this on our own and there are we, I loved your reference to HEPAC um, and other organizations that are doing this work that have experience doing this work. I think we have very few formal partnerships um, and I think that for us to be able to leverage more, I think we'll really also move the needle um, uh, on this work. And, and so I see that ahead of us as well um, in, in, and really under the, I think, scope of this expansion is how are we leveraging our community-based partnerships. You know, also the CBOs are struggling right now to think about how to how to get um, reversed for CHWs. They've never built that account before. This is new for them. Um, there's a lot of work ahead of us. What other questions do you have? Well, I appreciate being able to be here tonight. Um, and if you think of a question or you want me to come back or we can drill down on your question, what will CHWs do in the ED? I'm happy to come back and, and get feedback. Yeah, that would be very, very informative. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, we could do the program report. Oh. <laughs>
months that something had accidentally fallen off of the initial uh, attempt at the report, and again, just a new way of doing it. Um, so what you'll see here is we've made uh, some simple changes, which was we moved the homelessness to the front part of the chart, so you really get to focus on homelessness first, which is our reference point. Our unduplicated patients was another area that was intended for our program report last time, but through error by me, the person who's making the report, sorry about that, it accidentally got uh, removed um, in the first rendition. So you can see that there. We've also included um, those percentages for each of those, and we've kept the total amounts, which is new as compared to last month. So that's just the way we are showing it all to you now, and it helps also to um, reduce the number of errors we make when we produce the report. Those are the only major changes to the format. I'm curious about adults waiting for primary care. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot. Is there any um, like go to the front of the line for people? <laughs> <laughs> I think there is. Is it there? Um, not yet. So what we have been able to do with our new patient um, capacity for adults is we are able to identify now if they're on the registry or not, but we have not developed any changes in workflow that would put anybody in the front of the line. So first we've established that we can access that information around patients and have it on the waitlist report. And so next steps if chosen would be, you know, now here's the data and then what do we do about it? We haven't done anything about that. But if we see a homeless person in the van and say that person has a chronic illness, they can get into seeing a provider, correct? So patients that are seen at the van, if it's their first time seeing us and they're also waiting for a primary care provider, for right now what is happening is that they're doing follow-up care typically with Wanda Atkinson or with Kirsten. Oh, okay. And that's a return patient appointment. So the new patient appointment is a very specific thing for new patients. So what happens is they get their return appointment with the provider, but they have not yet had that new patient appointment. Right. And so we're working out right now whether they come off of that list altogether yeah. or whether they're put back in line to still get their new patient appointment. Yeah. So yes, they're being seen. And we are we are working out the details of are they do they still need their new patient appointment to establish care or do we just keep getting to do return visits with them? Right. There's some well, and we do conversation about that. We do. I'm I'm thinking of the way um, there's a gentleman I know who is homeless who ended up coming here in the emergency room for an infected wound on his elbow and. They, he stayed in the hospital for five days. He got treatment. They did surgery and discovered that he had bone cancer. So when he got um, released from here, they had already made arrangements for him to be seen in Davis, at Davis, I guess a specialist, right? And so, and they had, he's homeless, so he doesn't have a vehicle. They had made arrangements for him to take the train and everything was, was coordinated that way, and he got his treatment, he's doing well. So, 
I mean, that's that's how it's normally handled then, correct? That's how the inpatient service would handle that. I, I, I think that's, to, that's to a good e, case. To the ED as well. Well, to the ED and then to the state. And then, then yes. Then yeah, so yeah. discharge from the inpatient service with a discharge plan that includes coordination yeah. with employee specialists. I think there are times where people are discharged and they're coming to urgent care in the absence of an available primary care appointment. We also don't have a mechanism for prioritizing hospitalized patients or hospitalized homeless patients who are on this wait list. So there isn't really any prioritization. They can't that say be free, but um, parents also can respond. Oh, okay. Oh, great, great, great. Yeah. Yeah, so I think Terrence may have a Okay, Terrence. Hi, Terrence. Um, sorry, I don't know if you can, can you hear me? I can see you now. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> so I, I, I'm keeping my distance because I have a light cold and I have a cough. Not COVID, but I just don't want anybody to be alarmed. So just so you know, looking at what you're saying when we look at new patients, um, we I should say I've been looking at the new patient wait list because it's extremely long looking across all of Vancouver. We've been looking inside of Epic as um, Epic has what we're looking at now as a mechanism in it to look at weighting those patients that are on that wait list. And it gives, we're trying to understand the algorithm now. How does it look at all of those patients in the wait list and triage those patients so we can see who needs to come to the front of the line based yeah. upon what you're just described. If what, the way it looks now without having a clear definition, because we reached out to Epic headquarters, if we were to fully implement this in ambulatory, we would be the first medical system globally to actually implement this waitlisted wait triage system through EPIC. So we're really trying to pilot this for, for records and history. Right now, we know it looks at, it looks at uh, chronic conditions. It also takes into account site. We're trying to understand if it also takes into account a person who's housed or unhoused, because we know that is a huge risk factor for anyone who's out in the community and they don't have a, um, a structured environment. We're also looking at which one of the um, chronic conditions get the highest score and weighted value. Once we can look at those predictive values, this is something we're gonna look at to start looking at all those patients who are on the wait list. And it also, as we know now, also plays a factor into was a person admitted and how many times have they been seen in the ED? Because we know those are multipliers too that would predict a person coming in. The goal of this would be able to bring them in and see them into primary care versus allowing them to go to the ED are urgent care utilizing those resources so we can get them tied into primary care. So right now we've been meeting on this for about three months when we have brought in the EPIC BFFs into this as well because we're really trying to understand the algorithm behind these predictive values. Mm -hmm. That's great. Thank you, Terrence. Terrence, who are the, who are the, uh, is, is Porsche on that committee? Are there any other medical? So yes, Porsche's on there. Dr. Uh, Natalie Curtis is on there. Tanzarine's on there representing population health. Myself, um, we have the EPIC team, Michael, um, and a few others from there. And I want to say Dr. Sarah Raman has attended that meeting as well as we're looking at just trying to understand how EPIC uses that software and how it calculates and weighted out those patients. Mm -hmm. So I think that's something that we could bring back here, you know, when there's a decision made uh, about whether to go with that system uh, or to, to use another, you know, another approach to yeah. the prioritization. Is there a time that you anticipate 
that decision being made, Terrence, and uh, to, to know if we're going to start using that? Yeah, great question. Right now, it's hard to predict because Epic, since we've been exploring this and we're the first, we're having to really work with Epic because we want to look at the reliability of this, and we're really trying to understand the algorithm of how this is calculated, which we're needing Epic to help us with. We've, treat, we've taken a huge sample, a, a small subset of the sample there. We looked at patients against the predictive values to see what it was. But we're doing all the manual lift because Epic, as I said earlier, no other medical center who uses Epic has ever you know, even attempted to use this as a triage predictive value. So that's why I think this is a test that we want to start and start small. But we really need to understand the algorithm behind the data and how it's calculated. And so that's the biggest holdup for us. We've been doing this for about three and a half months now. We're closer to a predictive value, but we just don't trust the data yet to use this in full implementation to say that this patient should be seen over another based upon what Epic is recommending. And that's all based on what, um, what department is inputting the information on the patient, correct? Like if it's the ED or... It looks at everything. Or the health van. Yeah, it looks at, right now we know it's looking at ED, ICU, inpatient discharge, and any provider notes, but we don't know the scope of which providers are included and excluded, and those are the things we're trying to dig up as well to see. We know we looked at past health history, and we know that now it's, we also identified now, it's looking at medications. Yeah. Are you entertaining any other simpler alternatives, like Dr. Curtis brought up in one of our meetings, um, using ECM, for example, um, eligibility, enhanced care management eligibility as a criterion. I think that's one that we have from health plans for folks who are Medi-Cal eligible. Uh, and that would be a relatively straightforward one to implement without, you know, without the need to use a, an unvalidated um, risk tool. I, I don't know if that was actually evaluated after Dr. Curtis brought up. I haven't followed it, but I know she brought that up. Uh, a few months ago around the time this started. Have you guys talked about that at all? We have, and, we're, and this is why we're looking at the Epic because it runs it constantly where we can actually look at this on a daily and look at patients. So when we have slots and availability, how can we quickly run this report and get the triage of all these patients and try to you know, move people around based upon the urgency? Because the one we looked at gives a predictive value. And if I recall it correctly, it would say, this person is seen, they, they may decompensate and be seen within X amount of days based upon that. But we're still trying to understand how is it coming up with that value system and those predictive values. So, so yeah, the, my question was, are you looking at other ways other than using that predictive tool, just like using ECM eligibility, which we yeah, have a file for that we already know that data on the patients? Right, we looked at that, but I think we were really, to be in all trends, we were really looking at this one right now because of the fact that we have such a long growing wait list while we're still trying to define the term new versus return, which is a piece that's in play now. We're just looking at all options on the table right now. We're really looking at this AI to see what the power of this is because it's something we're really interested in moving forward because it evaluate every patient that's assigned to us. And this looks at patients also who's come to us once but hasn't come back but are in our network so that we can start reaching out to them, getting them back into the system if they're still an AHS member. And Terrence, how do they get on this list? Is it... Um, yeah, how, any patient who's registered and we've seen them in our system is currently on this. What we don't know is how long since they've seen care before they drop off. These are the things we're trying to explore to define right. what makes it an active patient that we should be addressing. 
Are they even still in our wake? Yeah, or if they fall through the cracks, or right. yeah, and like, um, like, and if this hypothetical patient expires, they'll be automatically drop off. We don't know those kind of right. of the system at this current state. But as it looks right now, this is something that looks really promising for us because it, it factors in every single patient across all of the system for us. Um, I'm my general usual question, what's our, what's our, as our, as a board, what's our decision-making or non-decision-making uh, um, role in this question of like whether patients go to head, go to the head of the line and how they go and right. like, is that? That's kind of what I was asking too. I mean, I, I would assume, and please correct me, Terrence, I'm just, my own thought process here. Um, if someone came into the emergency room and it was discovered, like in the case of this homeless person I know, that he had cancer, you know, uh, bone cancer, then when he was being discharged, they, the, the person that took care of him, set up all the future appointments for him and everything because of what they had found in the pathology report, you know? And I think. Um, having roles such as like an oncology navigator really helps patients with situations such as that to get into, into transitional care and continue the process in aftercare outside of the healthcare system. Um, right now, currently, we look at our oncology portfolio now. The providers are super busy. I just went to the work committee. We just got extra positions for our oncology navigator. We got an APP who's going to also help offset some of the work that our providers are doing there. And we're trying to develop what other um, ancillary role we'll need because those roles are pivotal to help people really get the care they need that may be outside of the, full, of the walls of the healthcare system. Right. And then to continue that care outside and maybe could be something setting up with home health. We don't know, but this is where their expertise lends itself to helping patients. Because we'll see the patients in the van multiple times, correct? We can, yeah, but we, we don't often, but we can. But we can because, um, let's say we, we saw someone and we know that they need to get into a primary care doctor for whatever reason. If they are one of these 2,000 people waiting and they get sick, they're going to come back to us, right? Sometimes yes, sometimes no, sometimes go to ED. That program's small as well, so the van, I think the van is probably not the best lens to think about yeah, yeah. this list. The ED is probably the biggest. Yeah, I see um, Lily's hands up. I'd love to respond to Serena's question if I could, oh. and then, and then um, maybe talk to see what Lily has to say. So formally, there's no specific HRSA prescribed or co-applicant agreement prescribed authority for a prioritization scheme. I will say it's entirely consistent with the spirit of the regulations that this board would weigh in on such a policy and, you know, and have a lot of influence over mm -hmm. such a policy and Having spoken to you know the chair of the board of trustees, I'm sure that they would be actually very interested in this board's opinion on a policy like this. Um, so I think you should think about it as something that um, both you know Terrence and Portia, as well as the board of trustees, um, would be really interested in knowing you know this board's recommendation around how to around how to structure like that. Currently, as staff, neither myself nor Heather is involved in this process right now. Um, 
So you know we have to find some mechanism to make that happen. Uh, but again, there's nothing. There's no formal. There's no formal authority prescribed via either the cropping agreement or the regulations that I'm aware of. In view of your point that you just made, um, do you think that the retreat would be the one place to bring it up? Not the uh, not the only place, no. But I think the retreat would be a, a relevant a relevant place to bring it up for sure. Yeah. Um, I think Lily had had a. No. I just wanted to add something. Um, we are piloting a prioritization for um, patients on the wait list. And Terrence, you might not have been, this is sort of a new uh, project that uh, also involves Portia, where we presented the same question. Um, as you know, you know, part of my work is overseeing complex care, and they provide the ECM services, enhanced care management. And one of the populations of focus is patients experiencing homelessness, and in addition to people who have a history of avoidable utilization or a substance use disorder or serious mental illness. So that's the kind of populations of focus we serve. When And, and one of our um, kind of mandates or standard work for the team is to follow up with patients after they've left the hospital. And our team struggle because our patients are leaving the hospital on the wait list. So we have a pilot right now um, where we are prioritizing folks who are leaving the hospital. So, um, so including um, patients um, experiencing homelessness, and we're monitoring it very closely, um, as, so as to not completely overwhelm primary care, or make sure that there's um, you know, even uh, distribution across the, the wellness centers. But it's going well, um, and uh, um, and I, I hope to to sort of expand that as a as a concept because I do think that. Identifying people who are leaving the hospital um, is proxy for risk. I think the other thing, just on the program report, right next to the number of patients waiting, is the capacity is minus four sixty one. So we're already, you know, over capacity, and I think limited by numbers of providers and space um, in some of our clinics, so that you know. At some point, you're just kind of rearranging a point in time on templates, but if you can't really see the patients, or if you can see them new, but then you can't see them in follow up for six months, you know, primary care is not so valuable as a one time thing. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> and then you actually can't see the patient again. So even if, if it becomes a return patient waiting list for your second appointment, that's really not that much different than a new patient waiting list. And so I think one of the other big issues, you know, that, that we need to think about is that minus 461. And, Know, what? So how do we how do we correct that? Which would mean more providers. Is, is that system wide? Like what about at the other the CHCN clinics? Like are they? I know that's outside this of is, ours, but I'm just curious. Do we know? We we do. Um, I haven't seen any recent data, but I know among the um, managed care data, and maybe Terrence has more information here. But we um, our clinics. Um, have more patients assigned who are not seen at all, um, who are assigned to Alameda Health System for their primary care but haven't been seen at all than the CHCN clinics have. Mm -hmm. But the CHCN clinics also have a number of patients like that. Mm -hmm. Then the question is, among those patients, are, you know, are they sick vis-a-vis -vis this, mm -hmm. you know, AI tool, vis-a-vis -vis ECM, vis-a-vis -vis other, other standards. So, 
but I think we're, it's pretty clear that you know Alameda Alliance, which is the largest managed Medicare managed Medicare provider, has assigned us more patients than we're capable of seeing in a year across the entire safety net system. And so um, I don't, I'm you know not aware of what the planning processes are around that or whatever. I think a lot of the focus the last couple of years has been just getting the administrative systems in place to do enhanced care management in place of the you know home health program uh, uh, health homes program or to um, you know to switch people over coming up on January first from Anthem Blue Cross to Alameda Alliance and there are a lot of administrative changes happening that I think the plan and the county and our health system are focused on right now uh, but I'm hopeful that eventually we get to the point of saying what's the numerator what's the denominator how are we going to meet this need as a yeah, and Dr. Pence is absolutely right. We, for a while, just at Eastmont alone, due to capacity, we've been closed for new patients. And we, we're trying to open back up to get more patients in. Space is one of our huge constraints. Um, this is why, which we'll talk about later, why we trialed a test of changes with urgent care to try to increase that capacity by extending hours, because that's something we do have more control over. Um, I've been in contract now with trying to get a better quote from a consulting agency to come in. It's space versus utilization and how we're utilizing each room. Portia and I did a complete walkthrough ambulatory. We have a lot of rooms that we could repurpose, but then we would have to give up storage space to accommodate. So now we're trying to look at the value of having a patient care room versus the resources you need to care for a patient and how do we transition to that. And that would require more partnership from our materials department to help that happen through like a ballet system of getting equipment upstairs. So we have a lot of, at Highland in particular, we have a lot of um, constraints associated with access. And Terrence, Highland is the only one that has the urgent care, correct? Correct. For now, yes. For now, yeah. I notice that Lily has her hand raised. Yes, Lily. One of the metrics that we're looking at for our CHW expansion is how can a CHW extend the reach of a provider? Um, so pro provider time. So you know we hear a lot anecdotally from providers who are spending a lot of time addressing social needs, doing mm -hmm. things that a CHW can do. So we're, that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how can we demonstrate that as a, as a value add of this new role that's embedded into the care team. Absolutely. Yeah, I can totally see that. Totally. Okay, so we, we have a quorum now. <laughs> so let me go back to um, the beginning of time. <laughs> see a roll call all the time. Are we still talking? We're gonna we're gonna pause really quick because we have enough members to make a quorum. So we have it for the recording that it's established. We have a, a whole meeting. Okay. So um, I'm gonna call the meeting to order again. It's seven oh four. Um, I will do roll call. Maria Mallon present. Richard Harley Jr. is um, is out today. Serena Clayton. B. Frank Walker would not join us today. Tammy Wilson would not join us today.
Marty Smith? Here. Derek Turner? Here. We have a quorum.